you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com events. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us today. Coming up later on the program, we'll be focused on the NBA in-season tournament. What is it? The Lakers tip off tonight against the Phoenix Suns in their first game of this next round of the uh, of the in-season tournament. We'll talk about how it relates to what else is going on in the NBA. We'll also next hour talk about the trend in public education toward what's called socio-emotional learning. This is prioritizing kids' emotional challenges, high depression rates that we're seeing in students, and trying to find ways to help them navigate through the intense emotions that they're experiencing. But um, as our guest will uh, lay out for us, the research shows that those programs actually are doing on balance more harm than good with students. How could that be? We'll talk about that with UCLA, uh, USC, excuse me, psychology professor Darby Saxby. That's coming up next hour. But we begin with the latest on what animal shelters here in Southern California and across the United States are dealing with, and that is a serious overcrowding, also euthanizing rates going up as a result of not enough space uh, for the animals that are in the care of the shelters. Joining us, Los Angeles Times investigative reporter Aline Chekmedjian. Uh, Aline, good to have you with us again. Uh, first, share with us how how much of a crisis animal shelters are experiencing. What kinds of, of rates of increase of animals in their care are they seeing? Yeah, thanks for having me on. So in California and across the nation, and definitely in Southern California, we're dealing with an overcrowding crisis. During the pandemic, there were less dogs in the shelters, and a lot of clinics during that time considered spay and neuter procedures not essential. So shelters now are saying that they're seeing more pregnant dogs, more puppies, younger dogs who are coming in that are not fixed. Um, and you know, people we interviewed said also backyard breeders went, uh, sorry, backyard breeding went up during the pandemic, um, which has had an impact on the numbers. Um, so in the in the since the pandemic, a lot more animals coming in, and that also leads to um, overcrowding and, and higher euthanasia rates. Um, and there's a lot of you know potential factors for this. There's you know a shortage of veterinarians. Pet care is really expensive. People have gone back to the office since the COVID lockdowns, and rescue organizations who would typically you know be stepping in to save at-risk dogs from the shelters are also overwhelmed and they rely heavily on volunteers and people to foster animals in their homes. It seems like also, this is just anecdotal, but during the pandemic, a lot of people who'd not been pet owners before 
um, you know, sort of responded to this trend and wanted to have a companion animal during the time of the pandemic when working from home, and that many of those people may have been individuals who hadn't had dogs or cats before, didn't understand what went on in the ongoing care, certainly didn't anticipate, as you were just talking about, the dramatic increase in costs for veterinary care, nor the shortage of veterinarians that we'd be experiencing across the country, and that all of this um, led a number of those people to end up giving up on being pet owners and and turning their pets in, or sadly, in some cases, abandoning them. Do, do we have any sort of data to back that up, that that is part of what's happening here? You know, there's definitely um, people that have wanted to uh, give up their pets owner surrenders and and now in the county system you kind of they, to they try to set people up with resources and in the city system um to to try to avoid that um and you know try to minimize the number of people bringing back in their pets um some nation some shelters across the nation have gone as far as saying like you know, you have to make an appointment or we're going to actually close our doors to intakes or surrenders telling the you know public, even if, you know, if you find a stray or you feel like you can't keep your dog, um, you know, don't bring them here. Uh, Aline, you detail that the increase in euthanizing of, of pets in shelters has increased rather dramatically. How big an increase are we looking at? So we actually focused on two shelters in the LA County system, which has seven shelters total. We focused on the Palmdale and Lancaster shelters and their dog euthanasia rates have gone up significantly in, in recent years from about 15% of dogs coming in uh, being euthanized to 28% this year through August of this year. Um, they also have higher, those two shelters have higher euthanasia rates than the other five shelters in the county system, which includes Carson, Downey, Baldwin Park, Castaic, and Agora Hills. Um, and, you know, we focus on the, these two shelters because of the increasing euthanasia rates, but also the Palmdale Animal Shelter is the newest of, of the shelters in the county. It was opened in 2016, and it was this supposed to be this cutting-edge shelter with all indoor kennels and a, a really nice building that was supposed to help with the euthanasia rates at the Lancaster Shelter in the Antelope Valley nearby. Um, and, you know, shelters had considered it a model and, and you know, now with the, the overcrowding crisis and the fact that it's really small and there's no room to house a lot of these dogs and animals, um, you know, their euthanasia rates are actually going up pretty significantly. Aline, do we, do we know what percentage of those are animals who are healthy and, and that it's really is a, a space consideration because... Um, even though I know there's such a thing as no-kill shelters, you do have have animals that are are extremely ill, that quality of life isn't there, who are going to need to be put down just as, as a regular course of practice in an animal shelter. But do we have a sense of, in this case, in Palmdale and Lancaster, how many of these are, are healthy dogs that are being put down? A lot of them, actually. Um, the the euthanasia reason they give reasons you know obviously if they're ill too ill to treat too dangerous to be safely adopted um but the 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 reasons being space or there's no interest in adopting them have gone up um there's hundreds of dogs euthanized every year for these reasons in those two shelters 
and, and across the system. There are, of course, organizations that adopt large numbers of dogs and cats who've been abandoned or that shelters can't house. Are those organizations at capacity? Um, I think, you know, from everyone we've talked to in, in, in the rescue world and the shelter world, everyone feels like they're um, overwhelmed and, and feeling like there's, um, there's a crisis. And Aline, uh, is is there a sense that this is a bubble, so to speak? This is a point in time because of the increase in backyard breeding and the number of pets that were taken in during the pandemic, that this will ease in time? Or is the sense that this is the new normal that counties and cities and a standalone nonprofit shelters are going to have to adjust to? I think everyone's trying to be creative and trying to find solutions um, to to adjust to this new normal. You know, in LA City, um, they recently decided to stop giving out breeding permits until their six shelters are down to 75% capacity for three months in a row. Um, that's one of the, the solutions that they're trying to see if that has an impact on, on overpopulation in shelters. Okay, so their thought is this is though a new normal. They think this isn't just a bubble. Well, I mean, I'm not really sure what um, if if it's something that's going to kind of level out or or if this is the new normal. But definitely, it doesn't seem to be you know month to month. It seems to be going up the the number of dogs coming in. You mentioned during that during the pandemic that um, free or low cost spaying and neutering programs were curtailed. Have those started back up again uh, as they were pre pandemic? Yes, I believe so. Um, uh, clinics have have started to do those at the normal rate where they would have otherwise. Uh, they sort of curtailed that during the pandemic. Rob in the Mid Wilshire District asked, "How is mor- morale for those working in shelters? Obviously, the people working there care very much for animals. That's what got them into this work. In your conversations, what what did they say about how the nature of their work has been affected?" Yeah, um, you know the the county department is is the officials say that they're pretty short staff. They're suffering from severe shortages, and there's um, you know people are feeling overworked and and um, you know having to deal with taking on a lot of different jobs. Um, you know, supervisors are helping out with animal care um, just because of the the shortages. So. It's 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 tough. I'd love to hear from you if you're an AirTalk listener who has been working in a shelter to describe just some of the emotions that go with this work, the challenges seeing overcrowded conditions and the shelters trying to respond to the dramatic increase in their populations. We're at 866-893-5722 if you have something to to share with us briefly about your experiences to add to the conversation. Uh, so at, at this point, Aline, what, um, aside from the ban, at least short-term ban on backyard breeding, are there other sorts of, of uh, ordinances, other sorts of responses that are being contemplated to deal with this? Yeah, so in the county, the County Board of Supervisors have asked for a plan from the uh, Department of Animal Care and Control 
to reduce euthanasia over the next five years. And, you know, since we started kind of asking questions about Palmdale in particular, um, they have asked the staff to look at what it would take to expand the Palmdale facility, because um, it is one of the smaller shelters, even though it gets just as much many dogs or if not more than in some of the other higher intake shelters. Um, so they're looking at potentially expanding that and the city of Palmdale is doing their own study on, on how to better serve animals and pets in their community. Uh, Aline, thank you very much for being with us and talking about your reporting. There are two companion stories uh, available at latimes.com uh, looking at the national picture as well as locally overflowing animal shelters. The other mentioning the Palmdale and Lancaster County operated shelters with uh, their dramatic increased rate of euthanization. Aline Chekmejian, investigative reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Coming up on Air Talk, we'll look at Reno, Nevada's approach to homelessness. They've had a very big problem with people living on the streets of downtown Reno. Reno's joined with its neighboring city, Sparks, to come up with a shelter and counseling first approach. We'll talk about what the response has been from businesses, residents, and from the those who've been living on the streets when we come back in just one minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. As you know from our many conversations on homelessness in Southern California, one of the big debates is what are the models that are going to be most successful in transitioning people from living on the streets or in their cars uh, to uh, some sort of a, a more permanent solution or at least a safe transitional housing environment. And that is sometimes pitting, uh, pitted what are called housing first advocates who really want to see the government provide ongoing permanent supportive housing for people that are in need. Others who say that's, that's well and good, but first the emphasis needs to be on getting people into shelters, even if that's not not uh, the the um, the highest uh, form of of residential living, just to make sure that people are safe and and then get the support they need to transition. Reno, Nevada, has undertaken a model which is getting praise and in fact getting the notice of other Western U.S. cities. Jim Carlton, Wall Street Journal reporter, has written about what's happening in Washoe County, Nevada, and joins us. Jim, thanks so much for joining us. Talk about your story. Reno is beating the odds in solving homelessness. 
Hey, Larry, glad to be here. So share with us just how Reno has approached this. What are they providing to unhoused people? Basically, what they're doing is they've got a um, tent structure. I mean, um, kind of like a big refugee tent. Um, it's the size roughly of a football field. It's horseshoe shaped. Um, it can house up to 604 um, people. And um, <clears throat> they set this up um, about a mile east of downtown Reno in a uh, kind of a, a, a vacant parcel area. And uh, basically, they were able to take um, more than half of their unsheltered homeless off the street and put them in that tent um, within about a two-year period. Um, the tent went up in 2021. Um, by this year, you know, the number of unsheltered went from 780 to about, you know, under 330, um, which is a pretty huge drop. Um, I live in San Francisco. You're in L.A. I mean, you know, we see homeless everywhere, and it's just it's kind of a, a jaw-dropping drop. Yeah, and and this obviously good news for the casinos and, and the tourist industry, which is so big in Reno. What are, are those who'd been living on the streets, who were living uh, in, this, in this shelter environment, what do they say about it? You know, they are quite positive, actually. Um, and, and here's the interesting thing, and um, they, to get homeless people into this homeless shelter, uh, a lot of times they use former homeless people. Um, in downtown Reno, they have a, something called the Downtown Reno Partnership, and they have 29 uh, street ambassadors. And I, I went with a guy named Roscoe Roper, and <clears throat> his job is to go around. And he, he sees somebody lying on the street, and he just says, hey, bro, um, you know, you can be a lot warmer. Go, go down the street. They've got uh, three hops in a cot. Um, you know, they can, you know, uh, get you. You, know, and you, you don't really necessarily have to go in sober. Um, you can't do drugs, alcohol in there. Um, but it's kind of a low barrier entry. Um, they've you, you go into the tent, and there's a lot of bunk beds, uh, and you kind of you go and you spend several months kind of transitioning. But I mean, overall, it's pretty positive. Uh, I mean, and there are quite a few homeless that are actually making out the other end and finding uh, tr- uh, you know. Uh, permanent housing. We have a frequent guest with us on Air Talk, the recently retired longtime director of the Union Rescue Mission on Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles. And he, he didn't reference Reno, but advocated very much this approach and said that uh, what what the approach was by L.A. Homeless Services Authority was, was really neglectful of those <clears throat> living on the streets because uh, of this whole housing first mentality and approach to it. But I wonder, in the case of of Reno, how you know for those who um, who say that this is kind of a permanent dead end for people, how does Reno address helping to transition people from from you know this kind of a shelter environment into having a place to call their own and in some cases employment? Right, and that's a big part of the solution, Larry. Um, so it's not just housing. Um, so they set up what's called the Nevada Cares Campus. It's on 15 acres. They've got the big tent. There's actually a um, <clears throat> an adjoining area with uh, like 50, like they call it Mod Pods, um, eight by eight uh, rooms where you can kind of uh, you know sleep. Uh, if, if you don't want to be around people, you can be by yourself. Um, but they have counselors. They have addiction recovery counselors. They have job counselors. Um, they have a clinic. There's a healthcare clinic because you know the homeless don't really have much care, and so. Um, even dental services, and so there's this little. It's like a homeless community, that and the and the and the goal is to get you up on your feet. I mean, they don't want you there more than say six months to a year. And uh, across the street, there's a uh, place called the Sage uh, Village, um, 
and that's where for $550 a month you can rent a like an 8x8 room. Um, you've got, you know, meals, et cetera. And so there's a lot of these um, Nevada CARES uh, residents are transitioning over to the SAGE kind of, uh, it's, uh, you know, uh, baby steps, you know, going to uh, housing. Uh, they help you with the rent and that kind of thing. But it's it's kind of like hand, you know, you, you need a lot of labor in this and a lot mm-hmm. of counselors. You don't just take them off the street and stick them in a hotel room like they've done up here in San Francisco. That just doesn't work. Yeah, so. that's what, what they've done in, in Southern California, too. We're talking with Jim Carlton, Wall Street Journal reporter. His story, Reno is beating the odds in solving homelessness. Also joining us, Washoe County Commissioner and Chair of the Regional Community Homeless Advisory Board for Washoe County, in which Reno sits, uh, Alexis Hill. Thank you very much, Commissioner Hill, for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Larry. I'm so excited to talk about what we're doing in Washoe County. Yeah, and and I'm just wondering, did you face pushback from housing uh, advocates to taking this approach of shelter first? Yes, we did. And um, certainly when the county made an agreement with the city of Reno and the city of Sparks to purchase the land, uh, folks wanted us to build apartments and house people immediately. Um, But as a compromise, what we're doing is we're triaging people. Uh, Essentially, we are working with them to get their IDs, get their bank accounts, get them enrolled in Medicaid or Medicare, and uh, really ensuring that they're ready to go to that next step of housing. And that's why we've been so successful in housing over 600 people in permanent housing, not transitional, permanent housing in the city of Reno. So it sounds like what you're saying is that this um, months-long process for people enables them to move into the permanent housing and and be able to make that work. Yes, sir. Essentially, you need vouchers if you're going to have a lower-income housing um, opportunity, and you can't do that without an ID. You can't do that with out uh, making sure that you can get the services that you need. And so we're, I really like um, how Jim highlighted that we're not uh, requiring you to be sober when you come into the shelter. Um, we are low barrier. We allow you to have your possessions, your pets, your partners, but we want you to be working from day one to working towards housing. And I've even gotten calls from folks who have gone through both our safe camp and the um, congregate housing and how it it has changed their lives. Um, We've gotten them into um, uh, housing, they've gotten jobs. And then for folks who are disabled, we have a population that is over, I think 40% of our population is over the age of 55. We're working to see if we can uh, build permanent supportive housing. We received a grant from the state of Nevada and we'll have permanent supportive housing on site to help those folks. We're talking with Washoe County Commissioner Alexis Hill, who also chairs the Regional Community Homeless Advisory Board for Washoe County, which includes Reno and Sparks, Nevada, uh, all of them collaborating on this approach. If you have questions for our guests about how Reno and Washoe County is dealing with its homelessness crisis, we're at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Commissioner Hill, uh, one of the things that Western cities are dealing with, of course, is, is the court decision um, in Oregon that requires before anyone can be moved off of a a city street, that there be a place for them to go where they can be sheltered, a bed essentially to sleep in, if they're going to be removed 
from the streets. And I'm wondering if along with making this uh, big shelter available, there has also been a concurrent move to remove people from downtown streets. Yes, uh, there are laws in place in the city of Sparks and the city of Reno that allow the um, the law enforcement to move folks um, because there are beds available at the CARES campus. Um, however, what I really love that we're doing as a region is it's the kinder, softer approach. We have caseworkers embedded with uh, the sheriff's office, the police departments of Sparks and Reno. And we also have advocates um, who are going out, we've hired uh, through the city of Reno, um, who have been homeless, um, have experienced it before, and are going out and really helping the folks who really do not want to go into congregate shelter and and working on our most difficult cases. So it's, it's all hands on board. What's really great about Reno is we have a lot of community partners. We can't do it alone. The government just can't do it alone. I would assume that for those who are coming through the shelter and, and counseling program, those with the strongest interpersonal skills are people who you'd want to hire to to then help others who are going through this process. And is does that seem to be a strong incentive for people to to get their lives together? I mean, we have a gentleman who was formerly homeless who runs our safe camp, and um, his name is Grant, and he really um, inspires the people in the safe camp to see what they can do and get their lives back on track. He's an entrepreneur now. He has a contract with the county to run the safe camp, and he also uh, does food donations throughout the community. So I think that they're, you know, really having a peer that you can look to and to see that, you know, it is possible to get your life back on track and for, uh, you know, to you to get a hand up. It's it's definitely a game changer. We're talking with Alexis Hill, Washoe County Commissioner, Chair of the county's Regional Community Homeless Advisory Board. Also with us, Jim Carlton, Wall Street Journal reporter. He's based in San Francisco and wrote about the northern Nevada community's efforts to to deal with homelessness, largely on, on the streets of Reno and Sparks, Nevada. His story is Reno is beating the odds in solving homelessness. If you have questions for our guests about Reno's approach to homelessness, we're at 86. 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722. You can also email your question to atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Uh, Commissioner Hill, um, one of the concerns I could see people having is that those eight by eight foot, you know, uh, tiny um, places for people to live, that they could end up being places where people are, are are using drugs and where there could be other problematic behavior that would be taking place. Is there any kind of oversight that's provided in that environment? Or if people, you know, are, are continuing to use, are they free to do it there? You cannot um, use drugs or alcohol on site, but certainly if you're intoxicated, we will allow you on the campus. So there are conflicts, but we as a county decided that we were going to invest in this problem. We were going to invest in our community, and we hired over 40 caseworkers as well as um, uh, conflict resolution managers um, and clinicians to Uh, support this congregate setting. We also have done um, a really good job, in my opinion, of uh, incentivizing folks who are moving towards housing. So 
If you uh, get your ID or if you've worked with us to sign up for Medicare, we'll put you in, or if you have a job and you're currently a, you know working and just do not have a home, we have um, individual little cubicles for you to live in as an incentive until we get you into that permanent uh, housing. So we're really trying to separate populations and uh, support people and meet people where they're at because every person who's homeless has a different story. Uh, and speaking of separating populations, Rebecca and Reseda asked, what is Washoe County doing to help women and families who have uh, suffered domestic violence? The large tent might not be appropriate for them. What are you providing in those circumstances? You're absolutely correct. So what we have done, and we started this before we did the congregate setting at the CARES campus, we created our place um, at our former behavioral health um, uh, property that the state owned. And so this is a place for children and uh, mothers and uh, families to uh, go, no men. And uh, we are helping people uh, get permanent housing and using the same um the same model over there, but uh, we also have a daycare on site and uh, we have drug um, uh, classes um, and and different workforce classes, as well as a garden um, at the R Place campus. Joe in Cincinnati, Ohio asks, where does the funding come for the project? Great question. So ARPA was um, a big help, and so was that initial initial CARES funding to help us during COVID to purchase the land, uh, buy the structures, but it, it is a, a public-private partnership. As I said earlier, we don't do it alone. We raised over $6 million from private foundations who saw the vision, and um, they have invested in the campus. And then the county, we have dug deep, and we are using uh, property tax general funds for the staffing. So it's a mix of all that. Plus, um, we do think we'll be getting reimbursement um, for some of the care that we're providing on site from the federal government, and then you know using federal government continuum of care dollars. It's all a mix of all those things, and then volunteers, and then these community nonprofit organizations who take folks and get them into the permanent housing um, after we've uh, helped them at the CARES campus. It's just a mix of all, of all of us working together. Michelle in Santa Monica wonders what the mix is of people who are unsheltered between those for whom housing is just too expensive. They don't have the resources to be able to rent a place in Washoe County versus those who are dealing with um, severe mental illness or uh, serious addiction. Right. I think that the chronic homelessness issue is about uh, half of our population. Sadly, it's either seniors, people who are disabled, people with mental health issues or addiction issues, and we need to get them into permanent housing. Uh, the rest of the folks are sadly, um, I mean, uh, a smaller percentage is uh, are working poor, people who are working at Walmart who cannot afford to live in the city of Reno. So we're uh, working with those folks too and um, and working with the city of Reno and the city of Sparks so that they can build the, these affordable housing properties um, so folks can 
uh, live and work in their community. We find that these are homegrown folks uh, who have worked uh, in, uh, many years of their lives and they just can't support themselves. So that's that's what we're also working on. County Commissioner for Washoe County, Alexis Hill with us. Jim Carlton, Wall Street Journal reporter. Jim, you, you quote, um, I think it was the mayor of Anchorage looking at this model. What seems to be the interest level among other cities, particularly in the West? Well, uh, interesting you say that, Larry, because I was actually I've been covering homelessness now for years. Um, you know, the uh, uh, Oakland, California, San Francisco, L.A., Missoula, Montana, believe it or not. Uh, so I was up in Anchorage um, actually doing a story about uh, where's maybe the worst place in the country to be homeless. And, and the answer might be Anchorage, Alaska, because it's so cold. And um, and he was telling me he tried to get a tent like this there in uh, 2021 and got shot down because you know, opponents thought it'd be too cruel, like a prison, et cetera. And then he said, Reno's got to figure it out. Reno's got the model. And I kind of looked at him and said, Reno? Yeah, so you need to go to Reno. So that's kind of how I heard about Reno. Okay. So Reno is on the map. Um, since my story came out, they've been, uh, Commissioner Hill maybe can attest to this, but I think they're getting a lot of interest from other parts of the country. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, right now, I mean, time will tell long-term how this works out. I mean, I think right now they've got it solved. Um the commissioner mentioned staffing. That's critical. The first year that CARES tent was up, they did have problems because um, they did not have enough staffing. They did have crime. They didn't have enough security. So now they do. So now it's working. But the, it's not, um, you know, silver bullet. You have to stay on it. It's not cheap. And so, yeah, I mean, so the, but Reno is definitely doing better than almost anybody I can think of now. Jim Carlton, Wall Street Journal, thank you for being with us. Appreciate it very much. And Commissioner Alexis Hill, thank you for joining us and talking about Reno, Sparks, and Washoe County's approach to homelessness. Coming up on Air Talk, we turn our attention to uh, a new study that looks at uh, hypnosis, hypnotherapy as a treatment for irritable bowel syndrome, which is uh, notoriously difficult to effectively treat. We're going to use that as a prism to look at hypnotherapy generally. It's something back when I was in school in the 70s, getting my degree in psychology, that was a very popular tool. Many psychotherapists were using hypnotherapy, particularly for breaking habits which were harmful. We're going to talk about where it sits now in terms of psychotherapy when we come back in just 90 seconds on Air Talk. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Democracy needs to be heard. This is Michelle Martin from NPR's Morning Edition. What does journalism have to do with democracy? The research shows that when trustworthy journalism thrives, so does civic participation. Reporters from LAist and NPR are here to keep your community engaged and informed. And that's why we need your support. By donating now, you're keeping journalism and democracy strong. Donate now at LAist.com give. And thank you. Research going back decades shows that um, 
Psychotherapy can be helpful in people dealing with digestive disorders. A new piece in The Atlantic titled Hypnosis Could Work Wonders on IBS looks at inflammatory bowel disease and how that syndrome uh, can be, in some cases, effectively dealt with by uh, using uh, approaches that include hypnotherapy. Joining us to talk about is the author of that piece, freelance journalist Kate Wheeling. Kate, thank you very much for being with us. Please share with us what the evidence indicates about hypnotherapy's success rate on digestive challenges. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so yeah, as you said, the the research on hypnotherapy and IBS goes back at least to the 80s, um, but it's been used in medicine since the 1800s as a as a pain reliever. Um, and so yeah, since since the 80s, there have been a few studies that show for IBS, um, it, as many as 80% to 90% of IBS patients who uh, who try hypnosis see improvements in in pain and, and bloating and some of their um, some of their symptoms. Um, and seems, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. Go on. No, I was just going to say it seems we just don't hear as much about hypnosis as a therapeutic tool as we did decades ago, and I thought that there was pretty solid evidence for it. It's that hyper focused state that it it can have an effect on the mind and and through its connection with the body uh, affect. Uh, you know, it's not not obviously a, a silver bullet. It's 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 not necessarily going to cure people of of all that ails one, but that it is an effective tool. What's your sense of why hypnotherapy is as at least in the public discussion seems to have fallen by the wayside? I think that has a lot to do with the way it's been portrayed in entertainment, um, you know, stage shows, people on stage quacking like a duck or in movies like Jordan Peele's Get Out. Um, and then also it was used for a while in things like recovered memory therapy, which was ultimately debunked. And I think that uh, that ultimately hurt hypnosis's image in medicine. All right. And and so what's the thought about how hypnosis, this this hyper focus, can be successful in treating digestive syndromes? What are the ways in which it's thought that's effective? Well, I think, first of all, it's a really powerful relaxation tool. Um, and we know there's a link between digestive, digestive disorders and stress. Um, and then also that hyper-focused state of trance really lets you try out um, different imagery and things that have been shown to be really effective for reducing stress and then also, in some cases, even inflammation in, in the gut. Kate Wheeling with us, a freelance journalist, uh, author of The Atlantic's recent piece, Hypnosis Could Work Wonders on IBS. Also with us from Stanford University School of Medicine, professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences, David Spiegel. Professor Siegel also directs Stanford's Center on Stress and Health. Professor, good to have you with us today. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. What's your sense of the potential effectiveness of hypnotherapy for IBS and other digestive uh, digestive ills? I think the potential is excellent. Uh, it's a terrific article, Kate. Thank you for writing it. Um, and hypnosis is the oldest Western conception of a psychotherapy and the most undervalued. Um, and it's really a shame because it is an extraordinary state of focused attention that can help people handle stress better. And one thing you need to think about, lest it seems so mysterious, 
is that on the one hand, hypnosis can help you focus, as you mentioned, on relaxing images, on getting your body comfortable so that you don't automatically react in a way that makes the stress worse. Part of the problem with things like irritable bowel syndrome is you get so frustrated by being in pain again, by having abnormal bowel habits, that you trigger a lot of the stress responses that only make it worse. The, the parasympathetic nervous system which soothes us is what we need at a time when we're reacting acutely to stress. And hypnosis, because of its intensity of focus, can help you turn down that natural feedback reaction that makes things worse rather than better. Uh, there's a, a British uh, uh, doctor named Horwell who's published a number of excellent randomized trials showing that hypnosis is better than other treatments um, in reducing um, uh, the stress response and in not only making people feel more comfortable, but in actually improving the abnormality of bowel habits. So it changes the physical function of the gut, not just the sensory function. Dr. Spiegel, uh, I, I'm no expert, certainly, but um, it, it seems to me that cognitive behavioral therapy, which has really come to the fore over the past 20 years or so, um, that that is a kind of cousin of hypnotherapy. And, and um, first of all, correct me if, if, if I'm wrong about that, but it seems to me that there are some elements that are similar in the two approaches. Yes, but it's a it's a it's a, a very useful technique. It's widely utilized. It's it's slow and methodical. You 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 start to challenge your negative beliefs about oh my god, I'm going to spend the next two hours in pain. That's not necessarily the case, and you can gradually make a change. The, the cool thing about hypnosis is you can do it in a hurry. You can shift gears. Imagine that you're, you picture your gut. Uh, changing from from uh, red red color inflammation to blue, calming yourself, not reacting as much to the same hypermotility in your gut when it happens. And you can teach yourself to do that with CBT, and that's great, but you can do it very quickly by just shifting gears into a state of hypnosis, and so it can work faster and, and sometimes more effectively. There are not studies proving that CBT improves gut function the way there are with hypnosis. What's the best way to undertake hypnotherapy? I know there are apps available. There are psychotherapists yes. who are trained in it and can do it. What do you recommend? Yes. Well, I, 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 you know, I've, I've been working, I've used hypnosis with some 7,000 patients and research subjects in my career. I've been waiting for it to be utilized the way it can and should be utilized. It hasn't happened. So we built an app called Reverie, R-E-V-E-R-I. You can download it from the app store or Google play. And you get to hear my mellifluous voice teaching you how to get into a state where very quickly you feel your body floating in a bath, a lake, a hot tub, or floating in space. And then you deal with the problem like irritable bowel syndrome, although that's not one of our special programs. But we have programs for stress management, for pain control, for insomnia. Um, and all of those can help people with irritable bowel syndrome. Um, we think that it is so underutilized and so misunderstood that I just wanted to go direct to people who want to give it a try and and have them use it. And you can hear hear my voice anytime, anywhere you've got your smartphone. <laughs> and it there is a mellifluous also, voice, yeah, indeed. It, thank you. <laughs> thank you. See, you're already hypnotized. Yes, exactly. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, tell me when to take the break. I'll, I'll take that suggestion. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll do that. Not, not for a while. All right. <laughs> Let's keep going. Um, it, it's also, there are, of course, like you want to go to a licensed and trained professional if you want to have a professional consultation, psychologist, psychiatrist, 
physician dentist if it's for pain control. Um, you want someone who has the training to help you assess what the problem is and whether you need other medical treatment for it, um, and at the same time, utilize hypnosis. And so there are professionals who, who do that, who have their primary clinical training and then have trained in using mm -hmm. hypnosis, and that's a good thing to do, too. What, one but of you the... can try it out with an app. I have, I have not um, undertaken self-hypnosis in a number of years, but in the times that I've done it, what I, I it's just, it, it's a very, very, it's hard to put it into words, such a calming feeling and a restorative aspect of it um, that uh, for me is just, it was very, very beneficial. I, I'd love to hear from listeners who uh, have used hypnosis in different ways in their lives, uh, whether it benefited you or not whether it uh, was a short-duration benefit or longer-term benefit, please share with us how hypnosis uh, has worked for you or not. We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. You can also uh, email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. When I was in college, I remember, you know, um, I actually took a class in which hypnosis was a significant part of it. And so we, mm -hmm. we had to do hypnosis with our classmates and in turn have them do hypnosis with us. It was a great experience. 866-893-5722. And of course, as, as the professor and our journalist guest just said, this is not like what you see in Hollywood depictions of hypnosis, right. getting people to bark like a dog or what. That, that, that's not what we're talking about. 866 893-5722. I sense the suggestion from Professor Spiegel. We should take a break. We'll come back in just one minute on Air Talk. Hypnosis has been used to treat uh, habits like smoking, anxiety, pain. And um, it's been something that for decades people have reported uh, benefit from doing it. I'd love to hear from listeners who've had the experience of using hypnosis. Lisa, in Venice, good to have you with us. I understand that you used it to quit smoking or at least tried to quit smoking with it? Yeah, I, I had a friend that um, was offering. She had just started her practice, and um, she, it was about 10 years ago, Um and she offered me a free a free session, and then I think I tried another time. It didn't work for me at all. I I, I couldn't. I, I laid there and I tried to get into it, and I was just like, it didn't. It did not work. I don't know why, um, but I just was laying there going, okay, she's trying to hypnotize me. I'm not buying any of this. It it yeah. seems like total. No offense to the the people it does work for, but it just seemed ridiculous to me. It just did not work. Yeah, well, let's, uh, uh, Professor David Spiegel, Stanford University, director of the Center on Stress and, and Health. What advice do you have for someone like Lisa who's tried it and, and it just it didn't work? Well, there are two issues. I'm sorry to hear that, Lisa, and your lungs are sorry, too. Um, but um, hip, not everybody is equally hypnotizable. So one part of it is that you just may have more difficulty getting into that focused state of attention. Uh, the other is the approach that one takes. We don't tell people don't smoke. It's like telling people don't think about purple elephants. That's what you think about. 
we teach people to focus on treating your body with respect for my body smoking is a poison i need my body to live i owe my body respect and protection think of your body as if it were your baby would you ever put tar and nicotine smoke into your baby's lungs hell no so you can feel good from the moment you make that commitment to respect and protect your body we get one out of five people to stop smoking the first time. I had one uh, young woman like you who didn't didn't at first didn't like hypnosis at all. She thought it was a terrible thing. She went home and tried it again using the technique I had. She looked at the cigarette in her hand. She lit it. She looked at it and said, Feh, who needs this? She said, I can't believe it. I've smoked for 25 years. I have not had a cigarette since. My friends can't believe it. And then she said, this is some crazy ass voodoo shit. And I mean that in a good way. She but said. So I would say, give it another try because your, your, your lungs and your body will thank you for it. All right. Uh, we just had a bit of a dropout there. We just had to, to bleep a word that Professor Spiegel used. Oops, sorry well, that's about all right. That. It's Oops. one in common conversation these days, but uh, given yes. that we're FCC okay. radio, we, so I just want to let listeners know I'll that's why there's no technical problem. That's quite all right. We're talking with David Spiegel, professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine, and what prompted our discussion of hypnosis, uh, particularly for uh, inflammatory bowel disease, Kate Wheeling, uh, who wrote an Atlantic piece, Hypnosis Could Work Wonders on IBS. Sherry in West Los Angeles said, when I was studying for the bar exam, I used hypnosis. Ellen in Los Feliz, can you clarify the relationship between hypnosis and meditation? Professor Spiegel. Um, yes, they are related, but they're not the same. Hypnosis is Western. It's focused on solving a problem. I'm not trying to create a cadre of people who go around in hypnotic states all the time. The way people are proud to say that they are meditators, they'll spend a half an hour once or twice a day meditating. That's a good thing too. But hypnosis involves focused attention and intentionality, focusing on solving a problem. Whereas meditation by definition says you should be open to your feelings, let them flow through you like a storm passing by cultivate compassion, check out your body, but not try to do anything to it. And so in meditation, you do calm yourself, but you don't do it for a purpose. You just do it to be doing it. And that's a good thing too, but it's different. Hypnosis right. is focused. You might think of it as focused problem-solving meditation. Doug in Torrance says, I've always had trouble sleeping. There are dozens of videos, links to hypnosis recordings. I use an eight-hour recording when I go to sleep, and it knocks me out. Gabby in Manhattan Beach. Gabby, we're tight on time, but please share your experience. I understand you grew up with your mother being a hypnotherapist. Yeah, she was a hypnotherapist um, back in the 80s um, when I was a kid, and um, she, you know, was a bit of a, I, I don't know, I believe a trailblazer in that regard. Um, she also did, worked with burn patients in, at UCI uh, to help pain management. Um, but for me, it was more of a relaxation, kind of get me to sleep, calm down from my tantrums. Um, and to this day, I, I use, I hear her voice to calm me down um, during stressful moments or whatnot. It, it has stayed with me for, you know, over yes. 40 years. That's great. Gabby, thank you so much. Let me share some more listener comments. Liza in Westlake Village says, I did hypnobirthing for both of my children, and it changed my life. Avi in Pasadena says, I'm a practitioner of hypnosis, and I really learned about it because I used it for myself to treat anxiety and migraines I was suffering. And Ron in West Los Angeles says, when I was 18, I took hypnosis classes, 
and learned self-hypnosis in college. I used it to help me on my tests. It was tremendously helpful. Thank you. These are all terrific comments coming in from listeners. Kate Wheeling, uh, just quick question for you. What are some of the apps that you might recommend for people? Uh, you know, this might be a better question for Dr. Spiegel. Oh, okay. I, uh, I didn't really investigate apps as part of the... You mentioned uh, Reverie, the one that you've developed, uh, Dr. Spiegel. Right. A couple of others you might recommend? Yes. There's one called Nerva, which is from a group, uh, Mindset Health in Australia, that is particularly designed to help people with irritable bowel syndrome. So I would strongly recommend NERVA, Nerva. And there's one called One Leaf in France now that is doing things similar to, to what we do right. with Reverie. So give, give them a try. I love the stories you told. And it, it, tells, it shows how underappreciated hypnosis is. Our phones just, just became huge after I put out the call. So many people are, are using hypnosis. Thank you, Kate Wheeling, for prompting this conversation for your piece in The Atlantic. Thank you, Professor David Spiegel of Stanford School of Medicine. More to come on AirTalk. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. I hope your day's going well. Coming up later this hour, we're going to open up the phones to hear from listeners who are holding on to sentimental items that might be a bit embarrassing or that you would only sheepishly disclose to others that you've held on to. I want to hear from you about those items. Be a fun conversation. You know, there are a lot of things that we completely understand why someone would hold on to, why they would have deep meaning, association with another family member, a critical point in one's life. But some things are, frankly, silly that we hold on to. That's going to be our focus, the things that... We can't even ourselves sometimes figure out why we're holding on to it. That's coming up later this hour on Air Talk. But we begin with a look at the deepening mental health concerns around American students that the pandemic revealed and seemed to have exacerbated. We've seen rates of depression and anxiety skyrocket among American students. Concurrently, schools have developed what are called socio-emotional learning programs to try and address this. They're designed to help kids get in touch with their emotions 
students to better understand what's happening in their inner lives and to come up with coping mechanisms to help them be resilient and to be able to process what they're going through emotionally. But as USC psychology professor Darby Saxby wrote a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times, the evidence shows that these socio-emotional learning programs are having the opposite than intended effect. Professor Saxby directs USC's Center for the Changing Family. Her piece was titled, This is Not the Way to Help Depressed Teenagers. Professor Saxby, so good to have you back with us on AirTalk. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So how could this be? These programs seem so well-intentioned. I described some of the things that they're attempting to do. Why do you think the evidence shows they're in in uh, large part misfiring? Yeah, that's a great question, and I agree. It seems like these programs should be working wonderfully well. They're teaching skills that we know are valuable, and they're very well-intentioned, but they seem to be backfiring, and, and it's not just one study that's showing that. There are actually three big studies that have come out in the last couple of years, each with sample sizes of a few thousand teenagers that have shown the more exposure teens get to some of these programs in school, the worse their mental health actually looks. So they're showing um, higher rates of depression and anxiety rather than lower rates when compared to students who aren't getting the intervention. So I have a couple of hunches about what might be happening um, and the reason that these programs seem to be undermining teen mental health. One is, is the idea of prevalence inflation and that's when developing a lot of awareness of mental health and a lot of sensitivity to mental health actually leads teens to be more susceptible to observe problems and pathologize them, um, both in them, themselves and in others. And, um, you know, on the one hand, I think we've done a great job as psychologists to kind of destigmatize and normalize mental health problems and um, really spread the word and encourage awareness of, of conditions like depression and anxiety. On the other hand, when there's a lot of awareness and when teens are getting a lot of content, not just at school, but also in social media, it can um, sort of heighten teens' likelihood of diagnosing themselves. And the worry there is that teens may then take those identities to heart and start to see them as, as kind of fixed characteristics of who they are. So. Um, you know, a teen might say, um, I can't do X, Y, and Z because I'm anxious or because I have an anxiety disorder, rather than maybe a couple generations ago when there was less awareness and teens were just encouraged to try to do things that might be challenging for and, them. And there was the assumption that teens often had higher rates of anxiety than than the rest of the population, that there were certain things that came through these dramatic changes going on in the brain and body over this age range that, that caused challenges in adapting to that. That's exactly right. Yeah, we know that adolescence is a time of growth and change and transformation. And anytime you see growth, you see opportunity, but you also see risk. So the brain is restructuring in a way that might make kids more susceptible to risk-taking, to experimenting with substances, to feeling self-conscious about themselves, um, to feeling you know, sensitive to the inputs they're getting from other people. So all of that can kind of set teens up to have 
uh, more mental health problems during uh, that time. Yesterday, I was watching a piece on CBS Sunday morning, or two days ago, I should say, um, dealing with destigmatizing suicide. And it had a couple of guests that we've had on air talk. It's a very interesting segment. But one of the concerns as I had when I was watching this is um, and, and destigmatizing and, and getting people to be open and talking about suicidal thoughts is, of course, a very good thing. But the concern concern that I had was whether it was really being addressed how for so many of us as humans, when you talk about something a lot, it can be suggestive and, and actually lead to rumination, things that wouldn't necessarily have been there when it becomes a more prevalent part of conversation. And I, I wonder if that's somewhat related to what you're talking about with the prevalence inflation. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a perfect way to describe what I'm talking about. You know, there, there, we know that when we're expecting to feel something, when we're aware that other people are feeling something, you know, it's kind of like the classic when you go to medical school and you're learning about diseases you and have them all. characterize them, <laughs> yeah. you start to think, you know, there's that medical school illness that everybody gets when they start to diagnose themselves. Um, and I think you know, it's not just that this material is presented in schools. I think the other important piece is that there's a ton of mental health content online where teens are spending a lot of time. So if you follow mental health influencers on Instagram, on TikTok, there's a lot of material about your triggers, your boundaries, your, you know, disorders that you may or may not have, your symptoms. And I think given that those sites are kind of run by algorithms that will show you more content as you start to um, as you start to dip your toe in, um, you know, the more you're viewing something, the more you're engaging with something, the more you'll you'll get shown that material. I think that's where you can really kind of deepen this these rabbit holes of kind of mental health information where a little awareness might be helpful. But like you said, rumination is the flip side of that, where you're really sort of wallowing in this material and starting to kind of see it as as sort of describing who you really are. We're talking with USC professor of psychology, Darby Saxby. She directs SC's Center for the Changing Family, and we're talking about a piece published a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times that I, I somehow missed when it first came out, but just caught up with it. And and it really it really hit me hard. Uh, the piece, This is Not the Way to Help Depressed Teenagers, looked at socio-emotional learning programs that so many schools are undertaking to try and help their students deal with uh, the intense emotions that many of them are experiencing, help them recognize them, process those emotions, and find healthy ways of dealing with them. But she said the evidence shows from multiple studies these programs often do more harm than good, and we're trying to get at the reasons why. So the first reason she mentioned, which she writes about in the Times piece, is prevalence inflation. The second one is saying that the programs are, are sometimes provided in the wrong place and to the wrong people. And describe, Professor Saxby, please, how the context of school might not be the best place to do this sort of, of education. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, school's a pretty structured place. You're, you know, frequently sitting in, um, in desks in rows, you're taking tests, you're, um, you know, you're being evaluated. So the idea of the, these kind of contemplative skills like mindfulness that are being taught in schools 
may just kind of clash with what the average student's experience is, kind of rushing from one classroom to the other, getting ready for a pop quiz, and then all of a sudden, you know, I'm supposed to sort of, you know, close my eyes and, and get into a meditative state. Um, and, you know, again, to kind of bring in the social media piece as well, I think there's a similar, like the context doesn't totally fit the message. You might have content about, you know, valuable skills for mental health, but if you're on alone in a dark room on your phone, scrolling through endless posts, you know, that, that might be working against what we know really does promote mental health. So the place and the time may not be the right fit for the kind of information that you're getting. I wonder if maybe at the end of the school day, sort of when students are used to transitioning anyway, as opposed, I don't know what time of day these are provided, probably all across the, the school schedule, but might that be a better way of doing it? I think so. And, you know, one of the studies that that found these negative effects for interventions actually found that students did do better when they practiced the skills at home. The issue was just that most students didn't practice the skills at home. But it suggests that the, still, the skills themselves can be useful when they're deployed in the right place. So like you said, maybe the beginning of the day, maybe the end of the day, maybe during a time of transition. Um, it, it also might be, though, that these skills are the most valuable for the students who really want them and are seeking them out. So the students who decided to practice at home may just be a different group of kids than the students who yeah. didn't find them helpful and didn't want to practice it. So it's not just the wrong place. It's also the wrong people. And it may be that when you're tailoring an intervention to people who really want it and are seeking it out, it's going to be a lot more valuable than if you're just delivering one size fits all to a classroom full of 35 students. Darby Saxby, USC psychology professor with us. The third thing you mentioned that might be at play uh, for the evidence indicating the socio-emotional uh, learning programs uh, are, are doing more harm than good is that there's information about the problem, but not enough to help students actually fix the problem. So they're kind of left with this sitting in their lap, having a tough time figuring out what to do. Right. It's kind of like you've awakened the sleeping tiger, but you haven't actually gotten it into its cage, right? You're reminding people that they're not feeling great, but maybe they don't quite have enough skills um, to manage the problem. And you know, I'm a clinical psychologist. I think our field right now has a lot of fascination with these kind of light touch, minimal dose treatments, single session, or let's do it all online. And I think there's a lot of appeal to that because it's so hard to get mental health treatment to the people that need it. But my worry is always that too small of a dose might be worse than, than no dose at all. Um, that, you know, you can end up having these um, you know, kind of negative effects because people start to feel like, well, I tried mental health treatment. It didn't do anything and, and it, it's not going to work for me. They end up feeling more hopeless about their condition than maybe before they kind of dabbled in, the, in that intervention um, or before they learned that material. Um, and I think the other important piece is, you know, we know that the best clinical improvement comes through relationships. It comes through what we call in clinical psych a therapeutic alliance, the bond that we have with a therapist. And I think when you're taking that relationship out of the picture and you're just giving information, you're losing something really important that helps people feel better. What might be a better way to do this? Is is there a way 
um, to, to have specially trained staff to do this uh, and that might over time build relationships of trust with students to help that be a better thera- therapeutic experience? Is it only taking students who are volunteering for this, who, who think up front that it might benefit them, as opposed to doing it for all students? Well, if you were designing it, how would you do it? Right. Yeah. So I think I would sort of go back to basics. So I have two kids who were in LAUSD public schools. And, you know, one of the perpetual issues and the teachers union has raised this constantly is the class sizes are just too big. Our class sizes in LA are bigger than in other cities and other states. And I think it's really hard for teachers to create meaningful, trusting relationships with students when they're putting out fires because they have 40 kids in their class. So I think smaller class sizes is probably, you know, it doesn't seem like a mental health treatment. It doesn't have any psychology labels attached to it, but it's probably the most sort of meaningful thing that we can do to improve students' experience. I think the other thing is student counselors, student nurses, um, you know, support staff, people that kids can have meaningful relationships with. Because again, I think it's that relationship piece that's gonna move the needle more for mental health then, you know, here's a skill or here's a piece of content that we can show students. And um, this is a bit of a tangent, but there was a really interesting article in the New York Times the other day about this intervention in Africa in um, a country where there was very little mental health support. And they actually trained women who did hair to have some mental health skills and work with their clients whose hair they were braiding. And I thought that was so cool because it was something that you could scale up and get to a lot of people, but it had that personal relationship component that I think is so key. And we just, you know, it's not necessarily about being a mental health expert. It's about, can you form a bond with somebody who will trust you? And um, and that's the way to help people get better. Well, and and braiding that's a great example because that that it takes time to do that. It's tactily involved as well, and so all those sorts of the issues of trust and time in someone's space that really makes sense. Yeah, I I thought that really resonated with me too. Thank you so much, Professor Saxby. Great to have you with us again and to share uh, some of your concerns about the socio-emotional learning programs that are being used in schools today and what the studies say about uh, them in many cases doing more harm than good. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks again for having me. Thank you. She's clinical psychologist and professor of psychology at the University of Southern California. Darby Saxby directs the Center for the Changing Family, and she's with us to talk about her recent New York Times essay, This Is Not the Way to Help Depressed Teenagers. Coming up, we talk about the in-season NBA tournament, the first year they've ever done this, kind of modeled after what we see in professional soccer, where they they stop the regular season to do an in-season tournament. It always sounded very strange to me. I didn't quite get how that fits in. But the fan response has been pretty strong to this NBA in-season tournament. We'll talk about how it's playing out and what the Lakers are doing with it when we come back in just one minute. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle with 
Lakers beat writer for the Los Angeles Times, Dan Wyke. He joins us to talk about the in-season tournament, which I don't think I, I understand quite yet. And I'm a longtime Lakers fan and follow the NBA. But, Dan, I'm sure by the time you're done schooling me on this, I will understand that the Lakers play the Phoenix Suns tonight. Uh, this the last game before the tournament uh, moves to um, Las Vegas, a neutral site. But, Dan, please describe first why the NBA decided to use this model that's been a fixture in European soccer. I mean, Larry, I think the fact um, that I'm doing the show today points to it. So (laughs) good point. normally um, I will come on and talk to you at the start of the season. We'll usually talk around the trade deadline and then in the playoffs, right? Like those are generally the hot, maybe Christmas, right? Like those are sort of the, the usual kind of high points. Well, you know, the sort of gold standard in pro sports is the NFL. Um, and you know, into a, a smaller degree college football and like they get those moments every weekend, you know? So the NBA looks at their, their kind of their schedule and, and they say, you know, we've 82 games we get, we do well on gate and, you know, people come into our buildings and stuff like that. But like, how do we, how do we get people involved and excited in, you know, what is one of our dead periods? And that's where this comes from, right? Like this is born out of, cynically you would say greed um but i think less cynically you would say a need to try to to eventize um early season basketball which has traditionally you know been viewed with mostly a shrug and i think you know the ratings suggest that's a success so far i mean again the fact that we're talking about this i think is a success and my hunch is based on the NBA success with things like the play in game and the, the playoffs and stuff that have become sort of staples here in the last few years. My guess is this weekend, once we move to Vegas, like it will feel like a big event. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be curious to see. Um, I, I was saying that in the group play games, uh, shown on ESPN and TNT, the average audience, one and a half million viewers per game, that's up 26% over the same time window last year. And then we had that that game a few days ago between the Kings and the Warriors, which got two million viewer average on TNT. So fans seem to be turning out. Yeah, and I, th- I think the numbers for last night's games are going to be pretty good too. You know, they're up against Monday Night Football, which obviously is not a um, not an advantageous position, and it was a great football game. But both both games were very exciting. Um, Pacers Celtics went down to the last you know minute and a half, and uh, Sacramento New Orleans was a very exciting game. So I think um, you you know to me the NBA cleared the the biggest bar, which was the games had to feel different, right? They they had to look different in some ways, and I think you know the courts tell you instantly that it's different. Um, that doesn't mean it's good, Larry. It doesn't mean I love it always. Um, some of them are very blue or very red, um, but it looks different. And, and and you know I think they there is a lot of hows and whys in this that can get a little confusing. Like you had said, like you know, they stopped the regular season. Like these games are still all technically a part of the regular season uh, up until the finals, which are its own sort of thing. Um, but they've just like added weight to them basically. Mm-hmm. But, but like that stuff, I think honestly for fans is like, 
you know, mostly irrelevant. Now like, the, 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 the scheduling is confusing, but like you can, we can we just get out of the weeds on that stuff. I yeah. think what, what matters most is that there is pool play. The teams that advance for pool play advance to single elimination basketball, which any fans of March Madness knows is the most exciting type of basketball. Like it's, it's every night is a game seven, um, you know, and the players have $500,000 uh, worth of um, excitement each to play for. And I have, I have news for our listeners. Like, if you ever want to, if you ever want to feel on the same level as a millionaire or a billionaire, I, which I think is a challenge always for me in these jobs, right. Is like, yeah. like, you know, finding common ground. Turns out we all want five hundred thousand dollars. Just as much. <laughs> That's enough money it to make them pay attention. It is a universal truth. It turns out. Right? It's amazing. A player can be making forty a million dollars annually, and still five hundred thousand is you know gets their attention. So, well, and we we should man. What's happening to the rest of the teams that didn't qualify? So the Lakers did yeah. qualify. The Clippers didn't. What do the Clippers do during this period? They get to practice today. And they'll play. They will play regular season games on Wednesday and Friday, um, and the the Lakers will have you know, um, along with the Knicks and the Bucks tonight. The Lakers and the Suns will have all eyes on them. Um, they will be the only games that are played tonight uh, when they advance or whoever advances Thursday to to, to Las Vegas, whatever teams advance. Um, they will be the only teams that play on um, Thursday in Las Vegas. I have to make sure I get my days right. And then Saturday in the finals, it will be the only game out. All right. Um, so it will be a um, – it's a very event-driven kind of like look at us. We're going to funnel all the competition now. The The only real difference is instead of playing on Monday and Tuesday, the Clippers got a, a couple-day break. Um, teams that didn't qualify got a, got a few extra days off in there. Um, and, you know, if the Lakers – the Lakers have these contingency plans. If the Lakers lose tonight, they will play a home game Friday against Sacramento, who lost last night. Like, that is sort of the contingency okay. that exists. What, not Phoenix will play Sacramento on Friday. And aside from the 500000 per player on for the team that wins, wh- what comes with this? Is there a tournament trophy? Does it factor it all into the end-of-year NBA playoffs? It doesn't, and I think that's an idea that has been kicked around and people have talked about like should winning the cup it's an nba it's a cup um should winning it uh maybe be sort of like a wonka-esque golden ticket into the playoffs like that you have secured your spot um i don't hate that idea i i think there's something to that like if you lock in say you can be no worse than eighth place which would mean you would host a single elimination potentially play in tournament game um, like, I think that seems like a reasonable reward. I think right now the money has been a good incentivizer. Um, players seem to be more engaged. Fans seem to know that the intensity is a little higher. And, um, I think on that front it's worked. Um, but, but really, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see, um, how the winning team sort of celebrates it. Like I think in the short term, the bet is that the money is what will motivate these guys. But in the long term, the, the goal is the, the prestige. Yeah. And if like, so long, will, will you hang a banner? Will there be a banner? Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if that's... the Lakers win the inaugural NBA cup. I, I, there probably should be, but it should be much smaller. Yeah. Right. Maybe right. the other ones they have. The other ones would yeah, yeah represent much more work over a longer period of time. But I, I, if you, if you had automatic qualifying 
for the NBA playoffs at the end of the year. Of course, the risk in that is that you have a team that wins the cup in in the middle of the season who then loses one or more star players. The rest of the season exactly. has a terrible record, exactly. and and then they're playing the number one seed, you know, in 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 the playoffs, and and no one's going to watch it. Yeah, well, so like I think that's why I would have to be some sort of guarantee them some sort of place in the playing tournament or something like that, right? Which is this other yeah, sort of concoction the shorter, being yeah. hooked up, you know, where maybe you only have to see that team once, okay. then, and, and you know, you know what I mean, or something like that. Now, uh, they they they've talked about different things and trying to attach different stakes to this. I think the good news, Larry, is that because it's been successful, um, like we're going to see it again. You know, uh, my colleague, Corey Kifu today wrote something in the LA Times, like, should baseball try this? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's like a logical question. Should hockey try this? Mm-hmm. Like, these are sports that that suffer from, um, you know, these extended schedules where it's hard to, like, it's hard to tell people. And, and I mean, look, you know, if you were a Laker fan last year, for sure you should, like, look back on the season and say a loss in November made a big difference. It was the difference between having being the sixth seed and having home court, or I'm sorry, uh, being out of the plan versus like having to play your way in through single elimination style basketball. Like, I mean, everybody was so bunched together, like yeah. these games do matter, but I think it's hard in the moment to sort of see, you know, the forest through the trees on an NBA season or some of these seasons, especially in baseball, Yeah, you know, where you play 162 games, it's such a long year maybe assigning some extra weight to some games would would make it more meaningful. Yeah, we'll have to see. Dan, thank you as always. Really appreciate you being with us. Lakers play the Phoenix Suns tonight at Crypto, uh, and this is the knockout round. If the Lakers prevail, they go to Vegas for the neutral site where the teams that are in the finals there will play for this inaugural NBA Midseason Cup. Dan Wyke is uh, the man who covers the Lakers for the Los Angeles Times and joins us on Air Talk to discuss all things NBA. Coming up, we're going to be talking with our producer, Lindsay Wright, who came up with the idea for the next segment, and is going to start us off with her own example of what we're talking about. That is something to which you have significant sentimental attachment. <clears throat> Excuse me. And and it doesn't really make any sense. Maybe you're embarrassed by it. It's, it's so trivial or so odd that you really would only sheepishly disclose it to someone that you knew. I want to hear from you what thing that you're hanging on to for which there's really nothing defensible you can say and and that it's frankly strange that you're keeping it. 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. We'll be back in 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. 
Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. It's Air Talk on LA's 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. You know, whole television series are devoted to people hanging on to stuff that they just can't get rid of. And if you ever watch any of those series, you see the emotional attachment when the professional organizer and the psychologist standing beside the person are saying, okay, no, let's let this go, put it in the trash. And you see the agony on the face of the person that the connection to that item is so strong. And in many cases, it's nothing that would be obvious to the rest of us. But to that individual, the attachment is indeed deep. I'd like to hear from you about an attachment you have to an item that you've kept for a considerable time for which there is no logical reason you're holding on to it. We all understand things that are, are uh, indicative of, of a transitional point in our lives that represent a family member that we love deeply, that we're connected to, and that the item is a remembrance of them. We all get that. But for many of us, we hold on to things that are just strange. It really don't make sense. We've just always had it and can't get rid of it. Or, or maybe it's, it's something that's even hard to put into words why there's an emotional attachment. I'd like to hear from you about those items, <clears throat> what they are, and why you have that level of attachment. We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. As I mentioned, joining me is Lindsay Wright, our AirTalk producer who came up with the idea for the segment. So, Lindsay, this is personal for you. Yeah, my mom recently moved out of the that she's lived in since I was a young kid. Um, she lives in Indiana. So my siblings and I all got together to help her move out of this basement full of stuff, garage full of stuff. And I knew no doubt that there was going to be a lot of pressure, mostly from myself, to come back with things, to take things that were, you know, needed to get rid of. Um, but there was one thing I knew I was going to come back with no matter what. And yeah. I have no plan on partying with. Um, and that is a unicycle that has been in her garage <laughs> for probably the last decade. Tire flat, not looking great, <laughs> but I came back with it. And do you have plans to actually ride it or is it just it's the symbolic power of the unicycle that holds you it's it's the symbolic power the tire is flat it's kind of rusty it needs a tune-up in fact i tried to air up the tire and it immediately went flat i, I don't remember the last time that I've, i i used it I, i've had it since i was probably 11 yeah. uh, i went off to uh illinois state university where they had the gamma phi circus camp when i was probably oh, 11 wow. or 12 um i was really into juggling my dad taught me how to juggle with the golf balls that laid around his house and i immediately took to it. So that eventually led to me going to the circus camp where they, you know, had the unicycle station and you could learn. I couldn't quite get it in the amount of time we had during that camp. So my aunt took me to a local bike shop and bought me a unicycle and we'd go out to the trails and practice every night. So 
I've had it ever since. Can't remember the last time I wrote it, though. So I'm just wondering whether it represents you attempting to master something, putting the time into it, whether it's that your aunt and doing this and warm memories of that. What What is it that you think connects you with the unicycle? I think you, it represents kind of how supportive my parents were in like those efforts. They totally would have encouraged me running off to the circus, uh, which most parents probably wouldn't. <laughs> um, but it also, yeah, it does. It kind of displays that uh, I had a bit of tenacity as a kid when I wanted to learn something and you kind of couldn't pull me away from practicing it until I got it. There were a number of things like that. And that's a really big example. We went out to those trails every evening and I and I got it. Um, and next thing I was like riding up and down curbs and stuff. So uh, a bit of tenacity. And I think that's a part of me that I, I want to remember. I don't yeah, necessarily need yeah. to write it, um, but I, I don't want to necessarily the, lose but that. But to have that possession. See, and when, when you explain that, I think that makes sense to a lot of people. And I think for many of these items, they might seem absurd to someone until you explain what it is that that item holds. And in your case, that now makes real sense when you describe what that signifies. It makes sense, but I'm still embarrassed. And I, I don't know why. Like, I'm embarrassed to say that I have a unicycle. <laughs> and it felt so ridiculous carrying that thing into the Indianapolis airport to the baggage check. <laughs> and I was nervous they weren't going to check it like luggage. I didn't know. And to my surprise, those the workers working at that baggage check most excited I've ever seen employees. They called other people over and they oh, took wow. it no problem. So that made me feel better. But I felt yeah. ridiculous, like carrying this with unicycle. The flat, was the tire still flat? The flyer was flat. It was rusted. <laughs> I saw it coming down the baggage carousel in, in LAX and I'm just like, oh my gosh, people <laughs> no, were staring at me when I mine, grabbed it. Mine. So I was embarrassed. Yeah. All right. Lindsay, thank you for starting us off. It's a great example. Lindsay Wright, our AirTalk producer. And yes, she has that same tenacity as a producer on the program. We appreciate that that quality of her very much. We're at 866-893-5722. Yolanda in Los Feliz, good to have you with us. What is the thing that you're holding on to that is kind of hard for you to admit to others that you've kept? Uh, it's a dark green bathrobe. I've always detested everything green. Uh, I'm 70 years old. My father died about 21 years ago. We always had a difficult relationship. He never gave me many presents at all, but he gave me this dark green bathrobe, and I took it graciously. I wore it a lot. It's, it was hideous then. It's more hideous now. <laughs> Every time I take a box full of clothes to Goodwill, I want to throw it in there, but I can't because my father gave it to me. He's gone, and he gave me so few things in life except my intellect, if I might say. Yeah. And so I just keep it in the back of the closet, and there it is, this hideous dark green worn-out bathrobe. I, I love it, Yolanda. Another wonderful example. Thank you so much for sharing that bathrobe story. We're at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722, or share with us the thing you'd only sheepishly admit to someone else that you've kept, and that's kind of difficult to understand why it holds sentimental value to you. You can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name, Lori N. Encino. What are you holding on to? So my mom bought my grandmother a Steve's Candy Easter egg. I remember those. In 1971, right? Yeah, right. We all ate them. So, um, and my grandmother didn't eat it. She was living with us at the time. And the gift was from my nephew, who was a baby at the time. So my mom never threw the egg away and kept it in her freezer 
Um, and when she passed away in 2006, I found the Easter egg. It's still in the packaging. Oh and so God. I kept it. So now it's in my freezer um, for 18 years. <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out what to do with it when I go. I don't know. Someone in the family is going to get it. Oh, my God. So it, that egg is more than 50 years old. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my goodness. And Not you've had it for 18 years. Out of it. Uh, yeah, right. Does does it still look as it did in 1971? Yeah. Yep, it does. Yep. Every once in a while when I'm cleaning the freezer, I take it out and look at it. <laughs> that's that's wild. Lori, thank you so much. A seized chocolate egg from 1971-866-893-5722. Tony in Santa Monica, good to have you with us. What are you holding on to? A gravestone, Larry. It's a fake gravestone, a prop from a film I did in the 70s. And uh, when the, my character in the plot uh, died uh, and the, the camera took a, a shot of the fake, the prop gravestone, and at the end of the, the shooting, I took it home and I still have it. It's sitting in a sack in my upstairs uh, uh, in, in, in my upstairs. You, so you haven't been tempted to, to put it out, Tony. May I ask what film it was you were in? It was a student film, a master film at USC, and um, the gentleman who directed it is now a successful director, and I think he's retired. But uh, wow. the point is, um, I, I couldn't... Uh, I couldn't part I was afraid <laughs> to some extent... Here's my fear. My, I was afraid to some extent that I wouldn't get a copy of the film, and I was a main character in it, because actors, as you probably know, uh, have a terrible time getting uh, uh, films, copies of films that they've done from uh, the, the sources. Mm -hmm. And uh, USC, uh, as, a master's, as I said, uh, USC has now uh, um, created a situation with SAG in which the, the directors and producers must give copies to actors so that was one good that's thing good so but that. you keep you keep the gravestone from the film you were in tony i appreciate it 866-893-5722 sandra in torrance what have you held on to weirdly enough a gallstone after the surgeon removed the gallstone that i had in my gallbladder <laughs> 20 years ago oh my goodness <laughs> wow, wow. And uh, interestingly enough, he thought that it was interesting and he offered to give it to me if I felt that I wanted to keep it, but he thought it was rather interesting that he wanted to keep it. So you have you have a particular type of gallstone that's notable, it sounds like. Well, apparently that was the reason why I had so much pain and I couldn't really eat a full meal for nine months. I don't oh, know how ironic that sounds. It sounds like I was having a baby. But that gallstone came out perfectly round like a huge mothball, but it was like a beige marble. Do you have it out on display like a, a piece of rock art or something? <laughs> Someday I want to put it in a necklace. <laughs> there you go. Send her your own gallstone to wear around your neck. I love it. 866-893-5722. It reminds me, uh, we have at our house my father's stapy. The stapy is a tiny little bow. It looks like a little stirrup that's in the ear. And my father, uh, who's deaf in one ear, had his stapy removed. 
And um, my wife, Kristen, being a speech pathologist, he asked, she said, do you want my stapy? And she said, sure. So we have this little container with my father's tiny little stapy from his ear sitting uh, somewhere in our house. I'm not sure where. 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Jay in Hollywood says, in the past, I've gotten high and made a crazy piece of art, and I have these weird attachments to them I can't explain. I have no other way to figure out the universe. I suppose this is my way. I just can't part with this weird art that I make. That's Jay in Hollywood. 866-893-5722. Alex in Highland Park. My dad hung on to every issue of Sports Illustrated he ever received for decades. When he ran out of space to store them, he kept all the covers and put them in a three-hole binder. That's Alex in Highland Park. Nadia in San Pedro. I've been holding on to these random old photos I found on the side of the road. They have this couple in them doing everyday things. I couldn't throw them away because I felt like I was throwing away someone's life. These are wonderful examples of things that people have held on to that may not make any kind of of sense from a logical standpoint, but carry emotional weight. We'll continue our conversation with more listener calls and examples of this. We're at 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. We'll be back in a minute. Oh, some wonderful examples from AirTalk listeners of things they're holding on to that have some degree of emotional attachment but don't necessarily make any outward sense whatsoever. Let's talk with Allison in Pasadena. What is it you're holding on to? Hey, Larry. Oh, my God, this is fabulous. I love hearing everybody sing, but I may have people beat, and I'm not sure if this is just too much, but um, I have our placenta in my freezer, your pl- um, wait, 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 wait. You have your placenta in your freezer. Well, it's not my, I guess it's, it's, it's my daughter's placenta. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. When we brought, when we brought her home wow. and it's moved with us several times and I have no idea. We have no idea what to do with it. We can't like, we're like, I don't really want to bury it in the backyard. We don't really, really have access to medical waste. We're just, it's the placenta in our freezer and it just gives us a laugh now. How old is your daughter? She's 19. She's going to PCC. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Allison, you may have everybody beat. All right. Uh, placenta in the freezer in Pasadena, 866-893-5722. Patricia in Culver City says, I have my grandfather's first haircut from the 1930s stored in a little box. It's become a family tradition to pass it down. I'm planning to pass it along to my daughter. All right. Why? (laughs) Patricia, thank you. Uh, Let's talk next with um, Nancy and Marina Del Rey. Nancy, what are you holding on to? I'm holding on to my mother, a lipstick. My mother died in 2007, and we put this lipstick on her in the coffin. And I'm still holding on to it because she's still wearing it. And I do wear it for special occasions. I mean, it's really got to be special. 
And so, Nancy, let me just, so this is the same tube of lipstick that was used to apply to your mother when she was in the coffin? Oh, oh yes. I mean, I brought it to the funeral home because I knew it was her favorite lipstick, and I didn't know what, what one they were going to use. And I knew that she'd be wearing it forever, so let's put the lipstick on her that she always wore. And now you take her with her, with her with you, so to speak, when you apply that lipstick. That's right. Nancy. That's right. And I also save part of her perfume. It's got to be special. It's got to be real special. Nancy, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. 866-893-5722. I could not have guessed the range of things that people have held on to. Uh, let's see. Carl in Irvine, what is it you're holding on to that's tough to explain to others? Uh, well, I have a camera from uh, the 1950s that actually belongs to my grandfather. Um, and I, living in the UK at the time, we didn't do a lot of traveling, but my grandfather traveled all over the world. He went to the Great Wall of China in the 1970s when that wasn't really a thing. And I, I kept the camera. It was one of the few things when he passed away about 15 years ago. That was the one thing I really wanted. It was the one thing that I remembered about him. And the weird thing is that there's still a roll of film in that camera. Um, and I can't bring myself to take the film out because... I'd be so disappointed if, if the film was damaged. I just like the idea that those images are still captured on that camera. Uh, and in my mind, I can kind of imagine what's on there, but I don't really want to bring the film out and, you know, kind of damage it in any way. I'm sure there's some listeners, Carl, who are thinking, how could you not indulge your curiosity to see what's on that undeveloped roll of, of film? How old is it now? Um... He passed away about um, 16 years ago, um, but he hadn't used the camera in quite some time. He had Alzheimer's when he when he passed. So I would imagine that film's probably at least 25, maybe even 30, 40 years old. All right. Thank you, Carl. 866-893-5722. Frank in Pasadena says, My parents for years had this large mirror that's also a Coca-Cola sign. It's huge. It's broken in the corners. Some of the glass is chipped. My brothers and I pass it along to each other every five years. Uh, Melissa emailed us, The thing I'm holding on to is a Valentine's Day box of candy with a love note from my dad. Circa 2014, my father passed in 2018. Tom in Ojai emailed, We have a 130-year-old farm and six brothers, so you can imagine the stuff stuck away in barns and sheds. We find things like gas ration, uh, windshield stickers from World War II. I have plastic model airplanes I bought in 1968 I still haven't built. And that's the teeny tiniest tip of the iceberg. That's Tom in Ojai. Uh, let's see. We have Manny in West Hollywood who emailed and sent a photo. This Capodam anti-vase I bought on Home Shopping Network at 2 a.m. in 1984. A reminder not to shop after midnight. But you kept it, Manny. Who knows why looking at the photo, but you kept it. Uh, Let's take another listener call. Uh, Allison in Chinatown, Los Angeles. You're on Air Talk. What are you hanging on to that's tough to share with others you've got? I have a slicing machine from my dad's negative cutting business. He's a film editor in Los Angeles for probably over 50 years. I think it weighs 
35 pounds. It has been sitting in a shoebox for 28 years. I've moved it with me five times, but it was part of him. He died this year. He was 92, and I just tampered with it. All right. And and you're not going to take up film editing, I take it? Oh, no. I, I worked two summers with him, and so that's a little piece of it, too. I think it just has yeah. that sentimental value. Uh, he worked hard with his two hands, being a, a negative cutter and film editor, and raised seven kids here in Los Angeles with my mom. And it's just something I, I, I've been listening to all the other listeners. Like, you just can't part with some of these things because it's a piece of your family, a piece of your past. It holds on to many memories. And that and that film, Slicing Machine, sounds like it so, so captures your dad. Allison, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Carla in Mount Washington, what is it you're holding on to that others might find head-scratching? Well, I have a small lizard called a leopard gecko that has been in my freezer since he passed away in 2014 after my husband and I moved to L.A. from the East Coast. He was my first lizard I got when I was in college, my very first pet as an adult, uh, and passed away right after I got married. And I've moved around since he's been in L.A., so I just haven't had the heart to put him somewhere so he's wrapped up with a little note on <laughs> in our freezer but you haven't given up on burying giving him a proper burial have you no i have not i have not it, i i tend to every once in a while clean out our freezer and pull him out and say like okay this year is going to be the year and then... carla we wish you all the best in that with the gecko creo in sunland says i have a fur ball from a cow's digestive system Uh, that my father got doing a report in the sixth grade, and I'll be turning 60 soon. Oh, thank you so much. These are terrific accounts of things being held on to that may be head scratchers. Have a wonderful rest of your day. NPR's Here and Now is next. Back with you tomorrow morning at 9. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com events. See you there.